Welcome to this special season of Libya Matters, where we reflect on the death and life of Salwa Bugagis and what it tells us about Libya today. The state of human rights, the battle for the rule of law, and the resilience of civil society. In this episode, we'll be looking at Libya's civil society movement and discussing its importance in relation to accountability and peaceful transitions. We'll be celebrating the achievements and resilience of Libyan civil society, which Selwa played an important part in creating. We will be discussing the challenges civil society actors continue to face and exploring ways to move forward. Marwa, are you ready to get started? Yes, absolutely, Ilham. As you know, this is a topic that I am very passionate about and always excited to take the opportunity to celebrate what Libyan society has achieved in the past 10 years. And I think that the best thing to come out of the 2011 uprising really is the birth of Libya's civil society. I couldn't agree more, Marwa. Of course, we're not rose-tinted about the challenges, but it is also important to spotlight the resilience of civil society in the past 10 years. So let us start with understanding what a successful civil society looks like and what the role and function of civil society is, particularly in the context of the transition we're in right now. But before we do so, it may be useful to define what it is we mean when we use the term Libyan civil society. Although we witnessed an explosion in the number of registered civil society organizations immediately after the uprising in 2011, the term civil society itself can be more widely defined than just the formal organizations. So it's good to think about it as a more dynamic term that encompasses any groups, movements, individuals that are civically or politically engaged. I think this is particularly the case in the Libya context because before 2011, there were severe restrictions in place regarding the freedom of association, for example, where the death penalty could be imposed for the establishment of organizations or associations uh, that were that had political ideologies that were contrary to the principles of the 1969 revolution. Fast forward to 2011, and civil society is now playing a, a major role in peace building and a significant political role as well. Many individuals, groups, and movements, like you say, sought to support the election and constitutional processes in Libya through engaging with citizens and informing decision makers. And I'm going to take a moment of nostalgia again here, and reflect on my personal experience in that period working on the study. I mentioned it in the last episode in the context of freedom of expression. But what I want to reflect on here is how organic that work felt. We were, you know, only months old when we organized the Rehla Twatan tour, which took us through 37 communities to discuss the constitutional process. And we were able to find partners in each one of those communities to facilitate our work there. I say this to show the sheer determination of civil society actors at the time, lawyers, activists, youth workers, students to come together. It, it was really so uplifting to see how quickly we could find partners um, on the ground in that period. That's amazing to hear, but I'm afraid it hasn't always been smooth sailing. In some ways, after the dust settled and the real work began, it took some work to get civil society to come together. I think this is largely because of the mistrust that Gaddafi, that the Gaddafi regime had instilled between citizens. What was it they say? Nine out of 10 people were actually state security. No one spoke to anyone out of fear, really. 
that resonates in the psyche for a long time, fragmenting a population, even when we have the best of intentions. So it's no wonder that it was also very present in coalition building as well. I don't think that this is something that has completely left us. A lot of the work of coalition building is also about building trust and relationships with other civil society actors and individuals. But I do have to say, and I can attest to this, that once you've established that trust, you've built a family more than just a coalition. I get that, though. I remember the first meeting of the LFJL founders um, back in 2011, March 2011. So it was very, very early on in the, um, in the uprising. And it was a Skype call because obviously that was the days before Zoom. And we were all silent on this call. And everyone's like, no, 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 you go ahead. No, no, you introduce yourself. And all of us were like going, I'm not going to be the first one to speak. I don't know who's on this call. And there was a moment where one of the other founders said, look, we're either going to do this or not. And it was that kind of human fear and this kind of human hesitation that was so common to all of us that in a way broke the ice. Um, and I think it's it's so natural because it's how we were raised in that period. You know, we were raised... And I, I give this example that if you're walking the street and you hear someone speaking in a Libyan dialect, you cross the road and you walk the other way. And I think a lot of that was translated into civil society. You sort of wanted to, to hear what someone was saying, what their intentions were before you decided whether you cross the road or you stay with them. And so I get that mistrust and I, and I get that that was and continues to be one of our big challenges. What made me continue doing this work is that it's humanitarian and focuses on rights. While it's full of dangers, it is filled with humanity. I connect the voices of the victims who are unable to communicate their cases to the international community and organizations. I am just a link between the victims and the organizations. There is a reciprocal relationship between us to reach justice for the victims one day. And this is what I and many our human rights defenders in Libya are proud of. There is hope moving forward. For example, under Article 6.8 of the roadmap set out by the LPDF, the executive authorities are required to remove the obstacles and restrictions on the work of civil society institutions. We can use the roadmap as a tangible way to hold the interim authorities accountable to their commitments. There has been some positive progress there and opportunities for further positive developments. We cannot have this conversation without also acknowledging the huge challenges that civil society continues to face, including deadly reprisals, It could happen to everyone, to any one of us. Like, if I'm in Libya, it could happen to me. This is the very sad part of it, that sometimes people don't feel what happened, what happened in, in Libya because they're outside of the country. But it can happen literally to anyone. If, like, some things happened to people just came to the airport and got kidnapped, for example. For example, she travels a lot and she came and she got assassinated. So it feels like it, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to any woman in, in Libya. And it happened and it did happen to a lot of women in Libya. 
instability and chaos are what makes this dangerous and life-threatening. Also, on the other hand, the culture of accepting differences that starts with us accepting and acknowledging the fact that we're not good at fighting norms. It's easier to think of the Libyan society as a, a, a one unit. We all think alike. We all like the same things. We're different ethnicities, but who cares? We're all Libyans. We eat the same, we wake up at the same time, we dress up the same way, we speak the same tongue. If you're challenging this norm, you're challenging them. You're challenging Libyans because that's how we lived. We've always lived thinking that we're all the same. And anyone who's different is probably trying either to bring different cultures to hijack our culture and, and beliefs, or they have an agenda. So it's easier to fight it than to go through the process to understand it and maybe even adapt to it, or at least believe in coexistence. If you're listening to this episode and wondering how you can support Libya's resilient civil society, then you can do that by supporting the Ali Nuh Fund. This is a fund created by LFJL to provide emergency assistance to human rights defenders who are at risk due to their work. Every penny you donate will go to them. We believe that one of the best ways to secure Libya's future is by protecting its human rights defenders. Join us in doing so by giving what you can to the Ali Nuh Fund. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description or visit alinouhfund.ly. That is A-L-I-N-O-U-H fund.ly. Thank you. And now back to the episode. To go into more details about those challenges that you mentioned, Marwa, I want to focus, as I always do, on, on the legal element of this. And in particular, the legal elements of what we've seen this year, because there's so much we could reflect on in the whole decade that we've seen. Since 2016, the executive authorities have been using Gaddafi-era laws to impede the work of civil society. For example, Law 19 of 2001. In addition to this, and in breach of their international human rights obligations, Libya's authorities have also issued a number of decrees and executive orders which really limit the ability of local and international civil society to work in Libya, really imperiling the prospects of political and social stability. The most problematic aspect from a legal perspective is the discretionary and overly intrusive powers that have been granted to the Libyan Civil Society Commission to restrict, suspend, dissolve associations and organizations because these decrees and pledges, most notably Decree 286 of 2019, specifically target independent CSOs. And it's also important to mention here that these measures were issued by the government of national accord. The GNA continuously pushed against civil society and were really problematic in that aspect. So as we move towards elections, the ability of civil society to participate in the political process is of crucial importance, right? It's, it's one of the cornerstones to lead us to elections. So while we welcome the appointment of the, of the government of national unity and the roadmap ahead towards elections, they have 
more to do in the next six months to ensure that civil society in the country can work freely and without any hindrance. The simplest and most effective way to do this would be for the government to repeal the repressive regulations intended to hinder the work of the local and international CSOs, including the decree that you just mentioned, Dilham. And Marwa, we know, and actually we've learned recently in, in these days that we've been recorded, that the government knows how to repeal decrees because they've just recently repealed the decree that created the Human Rights Office within the Ministry of the Interior. We can talk about that another time, about how I feel about having a Human Rights Office and the purposes behind that creation. But the fact that they felt comfortable to repeal that means that that is a power they're, they're happy to use um, you know, in, in reference to um, decrees pre- by the previous government. But instead, what we've seen is actually following in the footsteps of the GNA in terms of crackdowns, because what we have also seen whilst we've been recording these episodes is a decree or decision that is now um, freezing all um, licenses for international NGOs in the country. And so I'm not optimistic on that front. And I think there's a lot of monitoring that needs to be done to see what happens here. We have also come to know that within this a commission that's there to oversee civil society's work, that some of its directors, board and employees are members of different security apparatuses who perceive CSOs as organizations with foreign agendas working to threaten the national security and internal stability of Libya. This is particularly concerning because it follows accusations by Dar el in Libya that CSOs are participating in international advocacy efforts as spies. It could be argued that what we're doing here, this conversation, amounts to political activity under their loose definition of the term. All of these restrictions impede the crucial work of civil society in raising awareness and monitoring the electoral process. One of the biggest issues that I have with these latest restrictions are that they require CSOs to sign a declaration that prohibits them from engaging with embassies, with consulates, intergovernmental organizations, international organizations, in any form. It includes holding meetings, signing agreements or contracts without the commission's prior permission. And I want to take a moment here because this brings me back to the role of the international community in all of this. Because one of the things that we see over and over again is international donors continue to require local civil society organizations to register with this commission and to comply with it as a precondition to getting support from these institutions. As long as international donors continue to do this, I personally see them as complicit in civil society having to face this repression. And I hope, Marwa, that our audience won't mind us being direct with them when I'm addressing those who fit this category of being international donors to say that they need to remove these requirements and they need to take a firm stand on these issues and put more pressure on the Libyan authorities to lift these repressive measures instead of pressure on civil society to adhere to them. Why do we continue with our work? Because civil society work is authentic, genuine and much needed. It is necessary and critical to continue defending, supporting and advocating for people with disabilities and special needs. Raising the level of competence provided by key state services is crucial for people with disabilities to acquire their full rights. This is how I see it, and this is a goal I always strive for.
Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this special season of Libya Matters and are inspired by Libya's resilient civil society, as we are, then please support the Ali Noh Fund, an emergency assistance fund set up by LFJL to support human rights defenders under attack for their work. To find out more, click on the link in the episode description. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future seasons, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is hosted by Ilham Saudi and me, Marwa Mohammed. It is produced by Tariq Miri. The people who put the season of Libya Matters together are Ilham Saudi, Tim Molyneux, May Thompson, and me, Marwa Mohammed. This episode of Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with the German Federal Foreign Office with additional support from international media support, IMS, and Dignity, the Danish Institute Against Torture. Hi, I'm Mahdi. I'm part of the law program at LFGL. All of us at LFGL are sincerely grateful to Sarwa's family and friends and all our friends and partners in Libyan civil society who have given us their time and trust to tell this story. This series is only possible because of you and is a tribute to you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Shukran.